If you'll open your insert to the text, the top of it says, Covenant is the way. We're moving through the Old Testament for several months, hitting the highlights. Now, you may know that the Old Testament is very long which means we're going to leave a lot of good things on the table, not discussed. After church last week, I was talking with Steve Casey about um, the, the, the Tower of Babel. And Steve knows a lot about Scripture. He's like, isn't this cool? Yes, isn't that cool? Yes, isn't that cool? Yes. Are you going to talk about that ne- next week? No, I'm not going to talk about any of that. Like, that's one good example of stuff we're just not going to talk about. So this is an encouragement to you to read your Bible about all the stuff we're missing. Uh, we're going to set down at several sections over the next several months. Sometimes that means we'll look at a lot of text. Sometimes it's just one verse like we did a couple weeks ago with Genesis 3.15. But we're trying to get an aerial view of the storyline and occasionally diving down to look at one passage in particular to say, okay, where is this in the storyline? How does it connect to Jesus and how does it wrap us into it? That's what we're doing for the next few months. Today we're exploring the character of the Old Testament named Abraham, which may be a familiar name to you. Abraham, and this idea of covenant. Covenant. It's a biblical term, maybe unfamiliar to you, but my hunch is all of you, all of you have experienced covenant in some way. Either you've watched covenant happen, or you've participated in a covenant happening. With words like this. Have you heard words like this? I take you to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, cherish, and nurture until we are parted by death. As God is my witness, I give you my covenant promise. That, of course, vows from a wedding ceremony are two people making a covenant. And if I've done your wedding, as I've done several here, and it's the privilege of being a pastor in this congregation, lots of weddings, take those vows, make that covenant, and say something like, first we make the covenant, and then the covenant makes us. First we make the covenant vows, and then for the rest of our life, the covenant vows make us as we build a life together, uh, you know, working out our life together in intimacy, in partnership, and in protection of each other. Now, there's a tremendous liability in human covenants, and that is this. Humans. That's the problem with human covenants. (laughs) Humans are making the covenant, right? You have two fallible people making a solemn promise to each other, which inevitably, in some ways, go sideways, because the two making the covenants are fallible. They're humans. Uh, that's not the kind of covenant we're looking at today. We're looking at what we would call a divine covenant. That's the kind of covenants we find in the Bible given by God to his people. And you can define covenants in lots of different ways. I put one, I would say a common definition in your, in your insert there by a theologian, a theologian named Dr. Legan Duncan. Dr. Duncan defines, describes covenant as this. A divine covenant is a God-initiated, not human-initiated, but God-initiated, binding, living relationship with blessings and obligations. A divine covenant is a God-initiated, binding, it's permanent, living, there's vibrancy to it, 
relationship with blessings and obligations. So God enters into divine covenants with humanity, with his people. Now, in divine covenants, humans bring the same liability to divine covenants as they do to human covenants, namely being human, right? But God does not bring that liability because he is always and forever perfectly, completely faithful to the covenant promises he makes. And we see in Scripture that as we entrust ourselves to God's faithfulness to his promises, that actually empowers our faithfulness in response and maybe we could say expands our experience of God's faithfulness. It doesn't make him more faithful. He's perfectly faithful. But it increases our capacity for awareness of his faithfulness to his covenant promises as we entrust ourselves to him. So as we're so we're going to look at that aspect uh, through the life of Abraham. And as we're kind of going through the Old Testament, and especially today, we want to be aware of two things. We have uh, this storyline, right, God operating in history and a story that's unfolding, a story of grace that you get caught up in if you're in Jesus. That, I mean, still, like from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through the Gospels, Revelation, and right into New City Church today, this unfolding story you're part of, and it's a story moved along by a personal God who's a real, living, active, personal God. So we want to think both of, like, if you will, like the storyline and the author. Storyline and author. Even every time we're looking at the Old Testament, we want to be thinking storyline and author. What's God like and what's the story we're in? Today we're seeing God as a covenant God. He relates to his people through covenant, through the solemn promise of covenant. And... uh, we look at the life of Abraham. Originally, Abraham's name is Abram, so we'll toggle back and forth between those names, mostly because we just say Abraham because we're trained to do that, but most of the time, the name shows up, it's Abram. At some point in Abram's life, he cha- God changed his name to Abraham because it means a, roughly a father of a multitude. But uh, God first calls Abraham out of his home country and declares, you go and I will bless you. You go and I will bless you. It's my intention to bless you. A little bit of background here. Uh, Abraham and his wife are about 75 and 65 years old, respectively. Now, to me, that's younger and younger every day. However, part of the promise is I'm going to give you an heir, an offspring, and they are currently childless. So at 65 years old, Sarah's 65 years old, Abraham's, Abraham's 75 years old, that's too old under normal circumstances to have a child. The other thing to know is Abraham's wealthy. He's a rich dude. However, as in all wealth in that culture, it's land-based wealth. If you leave the land, you lose the wealth. And so Abram called out of his country, God's calling him, leave your land behind, which is the source of your wealth. And then the other part of your wealth, which would be livestock and people and people that, you know, who work for you, you're putting them in jeopardy by leaving the friendly confines of your home country and community. So you're leaving some of your wealth, you're jeopardizing the rest of your wealth. Um, And by the time we get to the New Testament, we understand that God's blessing on Abraham the fullness of it is that Jesus will come through the line of Abraham. Now, we don't get this whole in this passage, but we have the privilege of reading the whole Bible from the whole Bible. So we know this. Jesus is coming from this line of Abraham. So that's always in the background now as Christians when we read this. I want to drop down into three spots in Abraham's life. Now, if God had talked about the covenant in one spot, we would do one spot. But he didn't. So we're going to have to look at Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. 
as we kind of explore what's, who, what's the author like and what's the story we're in, okay? Starting in Genesis 11, this actually we'll talk about the Tower of Babel just for a second. Uh, you can read the rest on your own. Essentially, God has told humanity to spread out, go extend to the ends of the earth, take dominion over the earth, and the people of Babel say, no, instead, we're going to build a city. We know you said to go, but we're going to build a city. So verse 4 of chapter 11, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. Now, God had said, you go be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. And they said, no, we want to build a city. Why? Because it's safer in a city. And they're like, we're going to build this huge ziggurat-like tower. We'll, be, we'll have a real name for ourselves. We'll know. So here's what they wanted, safety. They wanted bless, the blessing of safety. They wanted a name for themselves. And they wanted a future. We're not going to be dispersed. We'll be right here for generations. They try to seize that. And you can, may know the story of Babel. God is not thrilled with that and disperses them. So they want the blessing of safety, they want a name, and they want a future. And God says, no. And then look, the next thing that happens is Genesis 12. Look at Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a, great, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's God doing? He's saying, Abraham, you go, and here's what I'll give you, the blessing of safety, a great name, and a future. Everything the people of Babel wanted apart from God to seize on their own, God says to Abraham, you know, in relationship with me, I will give this to you. Covenant trust is the way God gives to his people goodness. The things that we would be tempted to grasp apart from him, with him, he gives us. So what's the, what's the storyline here? Uh, Abraham trusts God and leaves his homeland. That's what he does. Packs up all his tents, his people's cattle, everything, leaves. And he would be made into a great nation. As the story of the Bible unfolds, we say, oh, oh it's Israel. But it's not just Israel. We come to the New Testament and we see, oh, Israel was foreshadowing something much greater, a much broader and much bigger, namely, y'all, the church. The nation that Abraham would eventually be made into is the people of God, the church. And he will make his name great. If you've been in a kid's Bible school, you ever sang a song, Father Abraham? Had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, right? Okay, we're singing about a guy who's 4,000 years old. That's a pretty great name. Those who set themselves against this work of God, God will set himself against. That's just the blessing and cursing thing. And in Abraham, through Jesus, all the families, or could be translated peoples of the earth, will be blessed as the gospel goes to the nations. But he has to trust and go. What does this teach us about the author? About God? We have to come to grips with this reality. This may be simple to you, but it is a good reminder maybe at the beginning of a new year. There's one reality with God displayed here that we must come to grips with. And this is perhaps challenging 
but maybe freeing in a culture that social psychologists call our culture one increasingly marked by safetyism and certainizing, meaning this unquenchable desire for safety and certainty. Here's what we have to come to grips with. Trust is the way. There is no other way. We relate to God through active trust. There is no other way. I'm sure Abraham wanted the option of the blessing without the act of trust. Lord, how about if I just stay here and you do all of those things? That was not the option. Trust is the way. Right? Entrusting ourselves. Not just believing something's true, but in tr- So like this, the difference between me trusting this podium, some of you can see it, it's like eight-inch podium, and not, like, this is not trusting the podium. This, this, like, I believe this podium could hold me. It's well-constructed. I've stood on it before. I was just standing on it. I trust the podium. That's not active trust of the podium, right? This, like, my weight kind of on it, not it. What it this is, right, this. This is active trust of the podium. Leaning full weight on something, that is trust. There's not another way. I love the way C.S. Lewis captures this in the silver chair. Uh, every couple years I read this. It's been a couple years This is all, like, a lot of preaching in New City is just trying to encourage you to read C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien uh, and G.K. Chesterton. So, it's also the source of, like, half my illustration. So, you may know the story. Um, Jill is on a, in, the, in the wood. She's got it separated from Eustace. Uh, these, these characters, it's an allegory, it's the Chronicles of Narnia. You might have read the books or seen the movies. And she's terribly thirsty. She's a bit dramatic, so she feels like she's going to die. Um, and she comes to this, this brook, this stream. She's, no, she knows it will quench her thirst, but by the stream is her first encounter with the lion Aslan. And Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia is the Christ figure. He is Jesus. And she gets ready to get a drink, and then she sees this lion, humongous lion, and she freezes. And here's the interchange between Aslan and Jill. Aslan asks her, are you not thirsty? She said, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, Aslan said. May I? Could I? Would you mind moving away while I take a drink? The lion answered only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked a mountain to move aside for her convenience. Aslan was not going to move, and the delicious rippling of the running water was driving her frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come and take a drink? I make no such promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Aslan did not say this as if he were boasting, nor as if he were sorry, nor as if he were angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear. Jill lamented, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go look for another stream then. 
There is no other stream, said Aslan. This is the one who calls Abram by faith and trust and to us. Not safe, not tame, known to swallow up boys and girls, cities, realms, empires. And he says, this is how you relate to me. You trust. There's one way. There's not another way. Guys, I just... I. I know in my own life, I know in some of your lives, I talked to somebody after service that the first service just said, I have simply not been entrusting myself to Jesus. I've been affirming that he's right. I've been liking the words. I've been reading my Bible. I actually have not been entrusting myself. I've not been leaning my weight on him. I dare say in our land of plenty, in our land of a lot of ease, even in the midst of pandemics, it is easy not to lean our weight on him. Um, this is, uh, trust is the way in human relationships too, right? In human covenants. We can't, when we're getting married, right, you can't have the guarantee of the future before you get to the future, Right? Uh, we can only trust the one we walk into the future with. Like we can't, if you're going to get married and say, well, I need to know, I need proof, I need to know for certain that if the, you know, if the money runs out, you'll still be there. The only way to get there is to wait and see what happens, right? Um, you, you, can't, you, you, don't, you can't have proof, you only get a person. You only get a person. And there's such liability in these human covenants because we're trusting people whose word is frail and who's fallible. And that trust can grow over time, but you know too, some of you know well that it can be devastating when that trust is broken. But where God speaks, we can trust because He's he's infallible in His words. And so let me just review a couple things that He has said that He invites us to like, not affirm, not say, oh, those are nice words, but to, like, trust Him. Words like this, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you weary? Are you weighed down by lots of cares and lots of fears and lots of distresses? Could it not be? You, Christian, weighed down by lots of fears and distresses, are looking at the promises of God and saying, oh, those are really good things, instead of leaning. Words like, don't be anxious, because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There's an entrusting that we're invited to. In the first service, uh, Mike and Mandy McBride were here. You may know Mike and Mandy moved from San Diego to plant a church on the south side. They were here for a year. They have moved. Well, they moved from San Diego to Indianapolis, right? Um, but they've put their whole, they've changed their whole life and moved into a direction. Why would they do that? These words of Jesus. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Active trust 
is what building a church is. Like, trust that Jesus will do it. Trust that his words are true in Isaiah 55, that my word will not return void. They're actively doing that. Um, it's, you know, 1 John 1, anybody who confesses their sin, God is faithful and just to forgive their sin and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. What does active trust look like? Active confession. Right? You're struggling with self-worth? Look at Matthew 6 where God, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. Don't you know you're more precious than that? Then, then the, the, God knows all them better than, he knows you better than the birds, right? I, I totally butchered that. God loves you, okay? <laughs> and give yourself to it. We give ourselves to it. Don't affirm it. Don't just say, oh, I like that. I'll put it on my refrigerator. We lean on it. We give ourselves to it. Philippians 4 says, make your request known to God with thanksgiving, and the peace of God will guard your hearts. What does active trust look like? Actively giving ourselves in thanksgiving and pouring out our hearts to God, believing that he will actually give us peace. And even when we don't have specific promises, we have specific general descriptions of God. He is faithful. He is good. He is present. We can lean on these things. A lot of the misery in our Christian life comes because we're just affirming things or acknowledging them and not leaning on them. Okay? I know this. I know this. Trust is the way. What's the other way? There is no other way. And to Abraham, and to you and me, God says, I got you. <laughs> I got you. You can trust me. Couple of, just a couple of angles on this here. Uh, in this chapter of life until the next chapter, even the fullness of what God gives is not full. Right? It's, it's incomplete. Because we haven't tasted the fullness yet. It was incomplete for Abraham. Hebrews 11 says he knew he was looking for a city whose foundations and builder and maker was God. It wasn't going to be here yet. Even in God gives blessing, name, uh, future, right? The name we get, by the way, is son or daughter. We begin to taste that now. It's, we don't get the fullness of that experience until the next chapter. Also, we probably should leave the, the, the details about what that looks like to God. We can trust Him for the, the general shape of it. But as we'll see, the, uh, the details of what it will look like aren't always what we expect. It's not what Abraham expected. Here it is in Genesis 15. God called him, said, I'm going to go bless you in, in Genesis 12. And then what happens? Nothing. He leaves. Okay. Lord, about 10 years past, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and the member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram, understandably perhaps, asked, So about this heir thing. I left when I was 75. Now I'm about 85, just wondering. How do I know this is true? Maybe Eliezer of Damascus will be my heir. Probably his household manager who in that culture could have taken his name and continued on like officially. And God said, no, no, Abram. That's not what I have in mind. I will fulfill this. And Abram believed God. Kind of, very weak faith. We'll see in a second. It's pretty weak faith. But God's super generous. Good enough. 
I see that faith. <laughs> I count it as righteousness. Verse 7, and he said to them, and God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, this is why I think it's kind of weak faith, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So again, Abram can't see how this promise is going to come to pass. Because he's weak. He's getting older. He's like, this, I don't think this can happen. So God has to do something that is completely strange to us. I mean, the humane society would go crazy over what happens right here, right? Pete is at your doorstep. Um, but it was not uncommon in the, those days. What does theologians tell us here? What's, what's happening is a covenant ceremony. If you really want to be a, a nerd about it, it's a suzerain-vassal covenant treaty, okay? Suzerain is a strong king, a vassal is a weak king. They make an agreement. Usually the weaker king comes to the stronger king and says, if you protect me, I will do this and this and this for you. And they have the terms of the agreement. And in order to, like the handshake is they cut animals in half and put them on either side of a path and either both parties or the weaker party walks between the animals to say this. If I don't live up to the terms of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me, namely death and destruction. If you really want to be nerdy, it's called a self-maledictory oath, okay? There. Um, it's like calling a, a curse on yourself. I'm going to walk between these, and if I don't fulfill today what happens here, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. So Abraham does this, and it's a weird thing that has to drive the birds away. I don't know what that is. If you want to do a cool... PhD dissertation right on that. Nobody really is quite sure. It is interesting in the Gospels and the book of Revelation, birds of prey are often satanic in nature. I don't know if that's what this is. Anyway, okay. But note what happens here. Uh, verse 12. Oh, this is so good. Uh, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now that's a prophecy of what's going to happen in Egypt. They'll become slaves in Egypt. Verse 14. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Okay, that's the exodus. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in, good old, in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. No time to address the iniquity of the Amorites. Sorry. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces of cut animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, so on and so forth. I don't know if you caught what happened there. There's this... Great imagery of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Like, what is that? I'm 21st century people. What else? Okay, this is a picture of God. Right? This imagery actually gets picked up in the Exodus. If you remember, when God leads the people out of Egypt, he goes in front of them as a, either a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. So that's a macro version of this little tiny version picture here, a fire pot with smoke coming up out of it. And in Hebrew, the word smoke and the word cloud is Almost the same word. In fact, if you said it out loud, you have to listen really careful for the distinction. And like the, the, torch, the torch is a little pillar of fire. So it's a picture of God, right? 
the fire pot and the torch symbolize God. Made sense in that culture a lot more than ours. But did you see who did and did not pass between the pieces? God passes between the pieces, and Abram does not. And theologians for centuries have understood this to mean God saying, may what happens to these animals, death and destruction, happen to me if I'm not faithful to the terms of the covenant. But Abraham, I will be your representative as well. And may death and destruction happen to me if you're not faithful to the terms of the covenant. So the covenant can stay in place and I will continue to bless you. This is him making that covenant. In fact, the the word in verse 18 for making a covenant is to cut the covenant. It's a life and death word. And many years after this, roughly two millennia after this, this is exactly what we see happening at the cross of Jesus Christ. God himself takes death and destruction to himself for our failure to uphold our end of the covenant, for our faithlessness. He takes it to himself so we get the benefit of the covenant staying in place. So we through faith in Christ, can inherit the land, right? And not just this little strip of earth in the Middle East. It's a picture of foreshadowing the whole world. We get everything because God took a walk for us that we could never take. It was called the cross. That's the storyline you're in. What does this tell us about the author? Well, this is the gospel right here. Our God is the kind of God who does for his people what we cannot do so we get full benefits, and he does it at great cost, at ultimate cost to himself. What do we do with this? We lean into it. This is the God. We lean into it. So we say sometimes here, quoting the old theologian Robert Murray McShane, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus because he's done what you could not do. For every one look at our guilt, take ten looks at the forgiveness of Jesus. For every one look at our shame, take ten looks at the covering of shame of Jesus. Right? For every one look we take at our weakness, take ten looks at Jesus and what he's done for us that we could not do, where he's gone for us that we could not go. For every one time we listen to that orphan spirit in our mind that says you're, you're isolated and alone and have to grasp for what you need in this life. You have to take it or you won't get it. Listen to the voice of Jesus ten times that says, brother, sister, I've made a place for you in the family. You get everything. You get a blessing. You get a name. You get a future in me. There is risk and uncertainty in trusting the Lord. I get that. Because he's not tame. You trust God. I don't, your life may go sideways. It's okay. He'll go with you sideways. But there's also an irrevocable certainty. Because the one we're going with into the future has already taken a walk for us we could never take and never have to. He's already gone to a cross for us. Um, by the way, this, this, this does mean too, like nobody, nobody, can, nobody can walk between the animals except God. Nobody can, uphold, nobody can uphold those terms of faithfulness. You know what this means? It means everybody in this room, if you look around, you're all great, you're all beautiful, you're in Christ, whatever. You're going to disappoint each other. We will, every person will disappoint you. Jesus will never disappoint you. Every, 
if you get to know me long enough, I will disappoint you. They'd be like, no, Roger, I don't think so. You, you just don't know me well enough, right? Your pastors will disappoint you. Your elders will disappoint you. Your deacons will disappoint you. Your mom, your dad, everybody will disappoint you. None of them can take that walk. You know, the last year or two, it's, there's a lot of public figures, public Christians who were famous, basically because they had a skill but not a lot of theology. And they would like, their walk away, right? So the latest phrase is deconstruction. People are deconstructing. You might have heard that, right? That's just the new word for uh, unbelief. It's weird. It's cool now because it's a different word. Um, apostasy, unbelief. We talked about it for centuries, right? Deconstructing. In a lot of the narratives, people are deconstructing because, oh, I was so disappointed by the way this Christian act. This Christian or this famous person or this person in my life who's claimed to follow Jesus and they were mean to me, all this kind of stuff. Look, that's what Jesus says too. Of course, every single Christian will eventually disappoint you. You know who never will disappoint you? The one who took the walk. The one who took the walk. He was the only one worthy. He cannot disappoint us. I want to ask people like, but did Jesus, did Jesus let you down in some way? Jesus didn't let us down in some way. Okay. First, he says, I've got you. You can trust me. Second, he says, I'm, I've performed for you something you could never do. And then, this is great. Thirdly, he says, hey, let's do this whole thing together. Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old now, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Okay, if anybody's counting, 25 years since he called him and said, I'm going to bless you and give you descendants. 25 years. Uh, So I probably picked the wrong English translation. Verse 2, that word that I may make my covenant between me and you, that word... You know, back in Genesis 15, 18, the make is the word cut. Here it's not the same word. Hebrew scholars point out that this time he's not saying not make a covenant, but build it out. So there's a difference between making a marriage, making, having a wedding, and building a marriage. How is he going to build out this covenant reality in the earth? Walk before me and be blameless. Walk, very simple. Walk is a Hebrew picture of very simple, daily faithfulness and obedience. Daily faithfulness and obedience. Verse 3, then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And remember, Canaan is a uh, hyperlink to the whole earth. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God gave the sign of the covenant, circumcision to be given to males in the households. I'm not going to get into all that. Maybe next week we have a, a baptism. But in the New Testament, this sign changes from circumcision to baptism. It's more of an expansive sign because the covenant expands in the same story, though. 
me back up there. What does this tell us about the author? God is the kind of God who partners with his people's trust and faithfulness in the expression and extension of his covenant in the world. Walk before me and be blameless. That's an astounding reality. Think of how you came to faith. How did that happen? You heard it from someone. Somebody demonstrated the love of Christ to you. Someone spoke the word of Christ to you. Maybe it was a team effort. Maybe it was your mom and dad. Maybe it was your Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was somebody at college. Somebody was walking before God and being blameless and you are holy, being, walking before God and being faithful, and that was used by God to extend his covenant into your life. Maybe it was a, a lot of things together. These are not heroic things. Walk before me is a, a common it's the mom in the middle of the night doing yet another feeding, praying for a baby. Super tired, trying not to fall asleep. It's you encouraging a friend you know is lonely. It's simple generosity. Walk before me, be holy. It's entering into the mess of another person's life with the love of Jesus, even though you know it's going to be messy. It's letting somebody into your, into, into your life. It's sharing your testimony of faithfulness of God in your own life with somebody who doesn't yet know Him. It's showing hospitality. It's doing our work, our vocation as to the Lord unto men. It's maintaining sexual fidelity in a licentious culture. It's maintaining fidelity to our marriage when times are dry. It's simply praying. Simple things God loves to partner with with His people in the extension of His covenant in this world. Simple means of covenant partnership where we get to participate with the author in a story where we and others receive blessing, a name, and a future. This is God's invitation to you today, 2022, act of trust, lean on Him, walk with Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the covenant. Though we've only begun to explore it here, pray, Holy Spirit, that You would empower us by faith, to entrust ourselves to you in new and fresh ways, even if we've walked to you with you for many years. In Christ's name.